You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Walked up to Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip who were waiting to greet him. Your Majesty, the wounds of our parting in 1776 healed long ago. Mr. President, the British and American people are as close today as two peoples have ever been. Lunch at the Reagan's Ranch. On a good day, you could see the ocean from the president's spread, but today you could barely see the fence. The queen smiled bravely, nevertheless. The queen was too low to see over the microphones, so instead of a talking head, she was a talking hat. I didn't realize that it, how it would look from a straight angle, or I would have, I would have interrupted her. President Clinton was saying goodbye to Queen Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> She gave me a look that only a mother could give a child. I had the opportunity to meet her before she passed, and she was an incredibly gracious and decent woman. And the thoughts and prayers of the American people are with the people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth in their grief. The death of Queen Elizabeth is triggering intense grief in America. The lights of the Empire State Building shone purple and silver in Queen Elizabeth's honor. In LA, City Hall was lit red. The late night shows paid their respects. As a talk show host, you often get asked the question, who would be your dream guest? My answer was always the Queen. And it really hit home for British-born James Corden. She was universally adored. She represented good in this world, living a life of, of honor. Barbara Streisand posted, she was a constant for us all, respected around the world. May she rest in peace. Diana Ross, who performed outside Buckingham Palace during the Platinum Jubilee celebrations in June, tweeted she devoted her life to her country and to the service of others. Even Russian tyrant Vladimir Putin paid tribute to the queen. Elizabeth II rightfully enjoyed the love and respect of her subjects. Over the decades, the Queen endeared herself to so many Americans. She saw the UK's special relationship with America as key to her reign. And nothing proved that more than what she did in the immediate wake of the September 11th terrorist attacks. That's when she ordered the Coldstream Guards band to play the Star Spangled Banner. This was the scene of their Royal Highness's arrival at the National Airport at Washington. There was a 21-gun salute in their honor, and the welcome from America was extended by President Truman. I think your visit will uh, improve, if that's possible, the cordial relations which exist between our two great countries. And I hope that while you're here, you'll have a very enjoyable time. 
During our trip through Canada, I heard much of the warm goodwill shown by the people of the United States towards the people of Canada. And I am glad that before sailing for England, we had to have this chance of seeing at least something of the country with which the whole British Commonwealth has so many friendly ties. Smiling happily, the Queen stepped down to be welcomed by her host, President Eisenhower. During her reign, the Queen met with every sitting president but Lyndon Johnson. Rita Braver talks with one of those presidents who has never forgotten the experience. It was wise not to underestimate her. She was a smart person. She knew what she was doing, and she believed that the life she had devoted to preserving the British monarchy was not a wasted life. Former President Bill Clinton, like almost every other president since Dwight Eisenhower, Thank you very much for coming to us. made it a point to see and be seen with Queen Elizabeth. Why did American presidents, time after time, carve out time to do this, to meet with someone who really didn't have any actual power? You do it the first time because it's a show of respect to the country. You do it the second or third time, as I did, either because she wants to do it and invites you, or because you got something out of it. And uh, I gained a much keener insight into the whole culture of the country. Mr. Clinton told us that during their very first meetings at a 1994 British state dinner and a ceremony marking the 50th anniversary of D-Day, he was impressed by the Queen's curiosity. What did she want to know about, like policy questions? She wanted to know about what was going on in America, how we were dealing with the economic travails we'd been through for the last few years. If she hadn't been born into royalty, I think she might have made it on her own as a distinguished politician or diplomat. When you are about to meet with the Queen, is there a whole list of instructions that you get? Yes, you're supposed to say Your Majesty no matter what. (laughs) And you're not supposed to have physical contact? No, no, not unless she invites it. If she sticks her hand out, you're supposed to shake her hand. Over the years, there were some amusing moments. When President Ford danced with the Queen, the Marine Band just happened to play The Lady is a Tramp. She certainly knew how to get a laugh out of Ronald Reagan. President George W. Bush almost aged the Queen by 200 years. You helped our nation celebrate its bicentennial in in 1976. But the next day, she came right back. I wondered whether I should start this toast saying, when I was here in 1776. (laughs) But while 13 presidents came and went, the queen endured. Is there something she said to you that you particularly remember? There's one thing, but I can't really... Still, it was inappropriate to... Reveal, oh, but come on. Let's just say this. If she trusted you, not to say what she said, she would occasionally say something to remind you that she was all business. When I said something that I meant to be supportive, but she may have thought was a tad patronizing, and it was the effect of what she said was, yes, I quite understand that. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing the way I'm doing it. 
And I, I loved it. I just loved it. I thought she was a very special person. I think a lot of Americans have just almost seen her as a cutout figure. No, You're was, saying she was a heck of a woman. She was an amazing woman. When her own marriage had problems, she felt pain. When her children were troubled, it bothered her as a mother and as the representative of the country in terms of what it would do to the crown. I'm telling you, she knew that her job was to keep the United Kingdom united, to keep the United Kingdom on track with America. There's something to be said for someone who wants to keep the show on the road, and Queen Elizabeth did, and by and large, she succeeded often against all the odds. Members of the Congress, it is my great privilege, and I deem it a high honor and personal pleasure to present to you Her Majesty Elizabeth II. I do hope you can see me today from where you are. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, distinguished members of Congress, I know what a rare privilege it is to address a joint meeting of your two houses. Thank you for inviting me. The concept, so simply described by Abraham Lincoln, as government by the people, of the people, for the people, is fundamental to our two nations. Your Congress and our Parliament are the twin pillars of our civilizations and the chief among the many treasures that we have inherited from our predecessors. We, like you, are staunch believers in the freedom of the individual and the rule of a fair and just law. These principles are shared with our European partners and with the wider Atlantic community. They are the bedrock of the Western world. Some people believe that power grows from the barrel of a gun. So it can, but history shows that it never grows well, nor for very long. Force in the end is sterile. 
we have gone a better way. Our societies rest on mutual agreement, on contract, and on consensus. A significant part of your social contract is written down in your constitution. Ours rests on custom and will. The spirit behind both, however, is precisely the same. It is the spirit of democracy. These ideals are clear enough, but they must never be taken for granted. They have to be protected and nurtured through every change and fluctuation. I want to take this opportunity to express the gratitude of the British people to the people of the United States of America for their steadfast loyalty to our common enterprise throughout this turbulent century. The future is, as ever, obscure. The only certainty is that it will present the world with new and daunting problems. But if we continue to stick to our fundamental ideals, I have every confidence that we can resolve them. Recent events in the Gulf have proved that it is possible to do just that. Both our countries saw the invasion of Kuwait in just the same terms. An outrage to be reversed, both for the people of Kuwait and for the sake of the principle that naked aggression should not prevail. Our views were identical, and so were our responses. That response was not without risk, but we have both learned from history that we must not allow aggression to succeed. I salute the outstanding leadership of your president and the courage and prowess of the armed forces of the United States. I know that the servicemen and women of Britain and of all the members of the coalition were proud to act in a just cause alongside their American comrades. Unfortunately, experience shows that great enterprises seldom end with a tidy and satisfactory flourish. Together, we are doing our best to re-establish peace and civil order in the region and to help those members of ethnic and religious minorities who continue to suffer through no fault of their own. If we succeed, our military success will have achieved its true objective. For all that uncertainty, it would be a mistake to make the picture look too gloomy. The swift and dramatic changes in Eastern Europe in the last decade have opened up great opportunities for the people of those countries. 
They are finding their own paths to freedom. But the paths would have been blocked if the Atlantic Alliance had not stood together, if your country and mine had not stood together. Let us never forget that lesson. Britain is at the heart of a growing movement towards greater cohesion within Europe and within the European community in particular. This is going to mean radical economic, social and political evolution. NATO too is adapting to the new realities in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and to changing attitudes in the West. It is Britain's prime concern to ensure that the new Europe is open and liberal and that it works in growing harmony with the United States and the other members of the Atlantic community. All our history in this and earlier centuries underlines the basic point that the best progress is made when Europeans and Americans act in concert. We must not allow ourselves to be enticed into a form of continental insularity. I believe this is a particularly important now at, at a time of major social, environmental and economic changes in your continent and in Asia and Africa. We must make sure that those changes do not become convulsions. For the primary interest of our societies is not domination, but stability. Stability so that ordinary men and women everywhere can get on with their lives in confidence. Our two countries have a special advantage in seeking to guide the process of change because of the rich ethnic and cultural diversity of both our societies. Stability in our own countries depends on tolerance and understanding between different communities. Perhaps we can, together, build on our experience to spread the message we have learnt at home to those regions where it has yet to be absorbed. Whether we will be able to realise our hopes will depend on the maintenance of an acceptable degree of international order. In this, we see the United Nations as the essential instrument in the promotion of peace and cooperation. We look to its charter as the guardian of civilized conduct between nations. In 1941, President Roosevelt spoke of freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world freedom of every person to worship God in their own way everywhere in the world, freedom from want and freedom from fear. Just as our societies have prospered through their reliance on contract, not force, 
so too will the world be a better place for the spread of that mutual respect and good faith which are so fundamental to our way of life. Freedom under the rule of law is an international as well as a national concern. That thought might be in the minds of those of you attending the 50th anniversary meeting of the British American Parliamentary Group in July. Both our houses are eager to greet you. They will, I know, tell you that our aim as Britons and Europeans is to celebrate and nurture our long-standing friendship with the people of the United States. We want to build on that foundation and to do better. And if the going gets rough, I hope you can still agree with your poet, Emerson, who wrote in 1847, I feel in regard to this aged England with a kind of instinct that she sees a little better on a cloudy day and that in storm of battle and calamity, she has a secret vigor and a pulse like a cannon. You will find us... You will find us worthy partners, and we are proud to have you as our friends. May God bless America. The Queen witnessed and participated in so much history over her long life and reign. And as we prepare to commemorate the 21st anniversary of 9-11, we're talking, taking a look at how Queen Elizabeth responded to those attacks. CBS 2's Tony Aiello spoke with a man who escorted the Queen on her only visit to Ground Zero. It was her third and final visit to New York City in 2010. Queen Elizabeth's tour guide at Ground Zero was Port Authority official Glenn Guzzi. She was bright and inquisitive. She knew how to make anyone feel at ease in her presence, but she was just a very warm, interested person. What was her mood about visiting there? What do you remember about that day? Both she and Prince Philip were very inquisitive in terms of what our challenges were really focusing on the human aspect of the toll it took on New York and the country. The attacks killed almost 100 of her subjects and clearly deeply affected the Queen, who broke protocol in 2001, ordering that the Star-Spangled Banner be sung during a service at St. Paul's Cathedral in London and during the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. To have that respect paid back to the United States. And such a dark day for the United States, I think, is just, you know, hugely uh, important. Guzzi has escorted many members of the royal family visiting the site and attended a garden party at Buckingham Palace with the Queen. She and her entire family, including the now King Charles, had always had a deep appreciation for New York. She clearly appreciated Guzzi, including him on her 2016 list of honors, an MBE award for services to UK-US relations. Just will always be eternally grateful for an individual who allowed me to become 
a bit more familiar with her. Her connection to New York and grief over the attacks enshrined in Lower Manhattan at a park she dedicated in 2010, the Queen Elizabeth II September 11th Garden. Tony Aiello, CBS 2 News. And normally on these picnic sites, you, you meet nobody, but there was two hikers coming towards us and the Queen would always stop and say hello. And it was two Americans on a walking holiday. And it was clear from the moment that we first stopped, they hadn't recognized the Queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the Queen where he came from, where they were going to next, and where they'd been to in Britain. And I could see it coming, and sure enough, he said to Her Majesty, and where do you live? <laughs> and she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. <laughs> and he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? Oh, she said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And you could see the clogs thick. And he said, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. I and as it. quick as a flash, she says, well, I haven't, but Dickie meets her regularly. <laughs> So the guy said to me, well, you've met the Queen, what's she like? And because I was with her a long time and I knew I could pull a leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humour. Anyway, the next thing I knew, this guy comes around, puts his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the Queen, and says, can you take a picture of the two of us? Anyway, we swapped places, and I took a picture of them with the Queen, and we never let on, and we waved goodbye. And then Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photographs to the friends in America and hopefully someone tells him who I am. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.